This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks where kindred souls gather together to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot known locally as the February Room is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CD USA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room. Following a few days of non-guided DIY fly fishing in the Florida Keys, I returned home with a nice tan, uh, but more questions than answers. While we caught a variety of fish and, and had a great time, um, one fish in particular left me flummoxed, and I'm hoping that my guest today may have some insight for me. He is a captain, a guide, a tournament angler, and host of both the podcast and the TV show, The Saltwater Experience, Tom Rowland. Welcome to the February Room. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, yeah, man, we really appreciate the time. Um, when you spend as much time on the water as you do, I know the days kind of tend to run together, but there's always those instances that stand out and create uh, lifelong memories. Um, do you have one such event that you could share with us? You know, there's, there's really, it, it, it almost happens on a daily basis. Um, the Florida Keys is such a cool place to fish and, and the saltwater fishing is, is such a good, you know, th you just see something different and something unique almost every single day. And about the time that you think you've seen it all or done it all, something else happens. So, um, yeah, there's so many things that stand out, I guess. One, you know, as soon as you said that, the one thing that flashed in my mind was when um, I had my dad on a show and and Rich, also my partner on Saltwater Experience, he had his dad, so it was a special show. And we went out and we were catching tarpon at Long Key Bridge. And, you know, my dad hasn't caught a lot of tarpon and Rich's dad, um, he's more of an offshore fisherman. He doesn't really pay attention to the tarpon either. So it was kind of a new experience for both of them. Um, and during one of the fights, uh, one of the real giant hammerheads there um, came up and, and attacked my dad's tarpon about three feet from his foot. Uh, <laughs> it really kind of freaked him out because, I mean, these things are like 12, 12 feet long. And, you know, they're not... First of all, the tarpon was the biggest fish he had ever seen. And then something comes and eats it, which is... That freaks, that tends to freak you out. Like if you've never seen that before, I mean, if it's like, usually it happens with like a barracuda or something for the first time and you, you know, the barracuda is the biggest fish you've ever caught. It's, you know, four feet long, five feet long or whatever. And a, a shark comes and bites it in half. And 
that kind of tends to freak people out. But this one was even more so because it was rough. It was pre-cold front conditions. It was very rough. And uh, my dad was sitting on a Yeti cooler on the bow and just trying to fight this tarpon. And then this thing comes and, and literally eats it right right uh, under the boat. And um, so the wind really started blowing and um, we didn't know what we were going to do. So we needed to film one more show. And we had never done this before. We decided we were gonna maybe go out and try to catch that that hammerhead because it was eating everyone's tarpon. And we weren't gonna kill it or anything, but we were just gonna try to catch it because it was there and it's you know, huge. So we did that and it worked immediately. It was um, it, right when we got to the bridge, we saw the fish, put a bait out and, um, and it, it came right over and ate it. And there were multiples there. So it, 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 it really opened my eyes because you, you, when you're fishing there and you're having these attacks on the tarpon, you, you hate to see that, first of all. And oftentimes we have to just stop fishing and move on. But you always kind of, I'm always kind of thinking like, man, that is one fast fish because it was over at that other boat, you know, and now it's over here. And then it's going to be down the bridge a little bit. But when we hooked that fish, um, that really big shark, it turned out to be 13 feet long. And, um, wow. you know, that, uh, that's about the only measurement we could get on the thing is just an overall length, you know, from the tip of the boat back to Jeez. way past the console. And, um, um, but we saw like three or four of them while we were fighting that, that one. So there are multiple sharks there that are all about the same size and look very, very similar. And so a lot of times we think it's just one, but it's multiples and they actually, they actually hunt, um, or seem to hunt, you know, kind of like a wolf pack, like that one of them will kind of, you know, go after the, the fish and another will, will actually come and, and bite it. But that turned into a real fight because the tide was pouring out when we hooked the fish and it pushes us way out um into the into the ocean but then the tide changes because we have this fish on for so long and it starts to come in and so the the shark starts to go back towards the bridge and we had to actually you know i don't know if you remember what the long key bridge looks like but it's an old style bridge and there's just a whole bunch of different spans hundreds of these spans that are pretty small i mean you can easily fit a boat through it but we had to fit a boat and this 13 foot long hammerhead through the same one and so it took a lot of real boat handling it was just me and rich in there so if you had had a third person it would have been much easier but rich is trying to help me land this fish and he's got the leader and then this thing's trying to go back through the bridge and it was really close to a lot of a lot of collisions because there's a tremendous amount of current there and you know even when you're just fighting a tarpon and you have total control of the boat you can you can hit that bridge very easily and so that was really something and we we just got to this point to where it was like it was almost like like when you have a funnel and and or like even in a river where you have like a big portion of the river going through kind of a little chute and and you see like you know maybe it's your strike indicator or whatever it's like going and then it just kind of catches the current and it just shoots through this little little gap right and that's exactly what this shark did and so it was about you know 50 or 100 feet away from the bridge and it's like it could go through that one or that one or that one and we have to be ready to take the boat through the same the same span and we kind of guessed correctly and uh, were able to follow that shark through the the bridge and end up landing it and then it actually went back through the bridge again so we had to do it multiple times um, and that was the first that was the first one of those that I had ever landed in it I guess still to this day it's probably the largest largest fish I've ever caught um, yeah but man what an, what an experience that was I mean just I mean there are people up on the bridge walking and looking down there I can't imagine what that looked like to see to see that now we have drones and everything you could actually get that but we back then we didn't we didn't have any drones or anything so we, we you never got that overhead uh look but i remember looking up there and there was somebody looking over the bridge and they were like holy cow man look at that <laughs> like that was a just a giant shark 
you know, in this little boat and two dudes out there trying to catch that thing. It was, that was, that was something I'll never, I'll never forget that because we just don't tangle with those kind of creatures very often. I mean, we see them, but that's a big difference between seeing them and trying to catch them. And usually I'm fine just to, you know, let them be. And, but that one, that one had attacked a lot of tarpon. So I didn't mind catching him. Teach him a little bit of a lesson, huh? <laughs> well, that was the intention, but I'm pretty sure it taught us a lesson. Rich threw his back out and was, was, um, he was on his back, um, for about two weeks after that. And, um, it was, I think the shark taught us a lesson <laughs> actually. Were you filming that? Did you, did yeah. you get that on camera? Yeah, we did. We, we got that on camera. It was the first time it ever happened. It was probably about season four maybe of saltwater experience and so now this is the 18th season now so um it was it was quite a while ago and we only had one cameraman at that point now we have two cameramen and a drone and still photographer everything's gotten stepped up but back then we had one one cameraman and uh he was able to he was able to get it and and (laughs) you know it was just I don't know. We didn't have any still. I have one photograph of that fish that that was off of a camera. Actually, back then, you know, you had cameras, and I think we probably clients would leave their cameras in the in the console or in the hatch all the time, and so you had like you had people's cameras, like and and a lot of times they were just disposable cameras. They were all all different types of cameras, not digital cameras, but film cameras. And people would leave them all the time, so there were always like cameras in the boat. And I think I took I think we took a picture with a disposable camera that I still I still have it of of that fish. But that's the only I mean that and the show those are the only memories that I have of that fish. <laughs> well, that scenario you described there with him uh, with with the current and the fish and the bridge and everything is uh, you know that's enough of a rodeo if you're just fishing on your own. But then when you're trying oh, to film sure. it with a guy jumping in and out. Uh, that, that yeah. sounds like that was uh, on the verge of being a real cluster bomb. Yeah, it, it was. And, and, you know, that happens all the time with tarpon. Like when you're fishing tarpon there, whether you're fly fishing or bait fishing or whatever you're doing, the tarpon will do that all the time. But a tarpon is literally a third the size of, of this these sharks that you have out there. So it And you can kind of, you know, a lot of times you can kind of direct a tarpon kind of like a dog on a leash. Like you can you know, you can really try to pull on them real, real hard. And sometimes that works, but a lot of times, you know, if you just keep like a constant pressure and you just, and you just kind of, I mean, it's very much like a dog on a leash. Like if you really pull back on a dog, he's going to want to go the other way. And if you, if you, uh, do that to a tarpon or, or any fish, really, they, they want to go the other way. But if you just kind of apply this, this gentle pressure, you can, kind of coerce them to go where you need them to either away from structure or or in this case like you can see that if they went through this one particular span of the bridge it would be pretty bad so if you can kind of just just direct them a little bit left then he'll go through the next one and that's going to be way easier for the boat to get through and you can kind of learn how to do that um over time but with those big sharks man there's that they're going wherever wherever they want to and you don't have any real control over them it's crazy well we were catching those little bonnet heads the other day on the flats which are Mm -hmm. which are super fun and um it makes me anxious enough to to handle those at the boat how do you how did you go about releasing a 13 foot hammerhead um kind of similar the bonnet shark is a is a is a great fish to handle because they actually do have a handle um they're one of the the sharks where when you can get those close to you if you grab them by the dorsal fin and just pick them up out of the water you have total control over that fish um especially if he has no um purchase with his tail like if so if you try to grab his tail and the dorsal fin he's all over the place man like like a snake and he can turn around and he can bite you and all kinds of stuff but if you just hold him only by the dorsal fin and lift him straight up out of the water then he'll kick two or three times and then he'll he'll go um you know re- he'll relax and you can get the hook out and you can put him back and it's good for him and it's good for you and th- those actually can be pretty easy to handle so the big ones are similar but there's obviously no way that you can lift 
even a even a eight foot hammerhead you couldn't lift out of the water uh, or or would you want to but you can grab them by the dorsal and then you know if they're small enough you might be able to control it enough to to get the hook out there but you know when they're really big like that um it it took a it took a rope um around the head so a hammerhead is is the easiest one to to handle because it it really does have a you know it's got a place where you can hang on to where you're way away from the from the teeth so either you're holding on to the front of the hammer or you're holding on to the back of the hammer or you can put a rope around that and you're not really hurting the the fish because you're pulling it with the with the uh the motor you know is engaged and so you're 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 providing oxygen to the to the fish but it's way too heavy for you to hold any other way so you you kind of if you want to get the hook out you kind of have to have some way to keep the head of the of the shark up because it's it's so heavy i mean you just you can't do it and especially in that situation where in that um position that you're in you know you're laying on the bow of the boat and you're trying to hold this giant shark up and and it just wants to sink down even even a foot or two and and there's and then the mouth is way under you know the hammer i mean on a shark like that it's probably a good two and a half feet under the under the end of the hammer so you can hold those really safely um and you're nowhere near the the mouth but we did get the hook out of that fish and and let it go and we were able to do it. Well, cool. Well, I wish I would have known that about the dorsal on those bonnet heads uh, before our <laughs> yeah. trip. <laughs> yeah. Well, next bit. time, <laughs> next time you can you can do that because those bonnet sharks, bonnet sharks, I think are super fun. And I spent tons of time with my kids fishing, you know, fly and spin for the bonnet shark because they are really, really good um, kind of fish to learn about sight fishing on the flats you know you need to lead them and you need to you need to make a good cast and and when you do you're you're rewarded i mean a bonnet shark will eat a shrimp really really well and they'll eat a fly too really really well but you do have to make a good cast just like you would with a bonefish or or whatever and um and they're they're great practice you know really great practice because you get a lot of shots sometimes and and they tend to bite pretty good yeah, and they're a great fish for a couple Montanans who are down in Isla Mirada with a with a a boat that are just trying to figure stuff out. Because sure, um, you know, as you well know, like it's hard to go down there and and just kind of do a DIY adventure and go like you know find a bunch of tarpon or find a bunch of bonefish or those it's really hard species are are tough to find if you don't know what you're doing, but. Uh, but those those bonnet sharks are yeah they we found them in almost every every uh, you know flat that we rolled up on and um, we'd spend some time trying to catch some snook and some other stuff and then uh, when when we didn't have a lot of luck with with that yeah well we uh, we we spent time fishing for those and they really are fun yeah nothing wrong with those no not at all um, and on that note you know we were we were I was really hoping to 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 catch some snook on that trip in the back of my mind. I mean, I was just honestly happy to be down there and to, to be out of the snow for a week. Mm-hmm. And we, we lucked out on the weather the time we were there. We were able to get the boat out every day. Um, you know, even though the locals were complaining that they, uh, that they, uh, air quote, better bring the dogs in. Because uh, <laughs> it was uh, 55 in the morning or whatever. Uh, the weather pretty was cold. Was, pretty <laughs> yeah, cold for the keys. For you guys. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. But it got progressively nicer every day, and uh, and and we totally lucked out. But you know, I was in the back of my mind. I'm like, oh man, I'd really like to get a nice snook on this trip, and and I I ended up hooking one, and it was just blind luck. They this school happened to be rolling by when my fly happened to be in the right spot, and one of them made it, and uh, and I ended up losing them. But the ones that we spotted and and rolled up on and and put a fly in front of just didn't show much interest, and. Um, um, I guess I was kind of under the impression that snooker is somewhat agreeable fish under a lot of circumstances, but that uh, that hasn't been my experience. Um, what would you t- what would what advice would you give, say, me if I were going to go out and try to catch a snook on the fly for the first time? Well, I think snook snooker are sneaky fish. They're 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 tricky, and they can be they can be as tough as any fish. And if you're fishing snook in clear water, clear clear shallow water, 
good luck. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough. I mean, right up there with permit and bonefish and, and you got to do it right. And you got to make the right approach. And, and really, I think to catch them consistently on fly, you really need to go to kind of the right area. Not that you couldn't catch them other places, like when you find them in clear water under the bushes or, or whatever, closer to Isla Mirada. They can be caught, but they can be very spooky, you know, like more spooky than tarpon, and they just won't have any of it. Like after you make one bad cast, they're just, they just push back under the bushes, and, and, and you just don't see them anymore. But when you can find them, like up in the Everglades around Flamingo and all the d- different keys up there and the big flats, um, and they're out in the open, I find that they're way easier to catch. And what you can do is you can find them on the channel edges and um, you can make a really good approach on that fish and make a good cast um, as opposed to having to cast around the bushes. And sometimes that can, I mean, sometimes that can work. And depending on the water clarity and, you know, how much they're feeding and, and, and all of that, they can be either more aggressive or or very you know non-aggressive they the snook when you catch them if you look at them they have a flat belly like their belly is flat and almost square and they use that or it's been been evolved into that because they just lay on the bottom they they will lay on the bottom and Hmm. and sit there like a i mean like a barracuda will sit there motionless but a barracuda doesn't lay down with it in contact with the bottom and the snook will do that lots and Hmm. they have a belly that that you know i mean when you look at the fish next time you catch one just look at it and it's like it has this square belly that kind of you know is adapted to do that and they sit there and they can sit there when they don't want to feed they can sit there in a tide change they can sit there in an ambush position and wait to feed like a largemouth bass or you know something like that and they um they they can just be they can be tricky but but i think that you know when you're finding that kind of incoming or outgoing tide up in the everglades and you're seeing flats where you're you're seeing you know a lot of different fish up on the flats like redfish and trout and there's there's snook up there too and you know up there you'll see all the all the different sharks and little sharks and you know you're looking for a place where you got a lot of activity and um you know rays as well and you know keeping a, a sharp eye you can see you can see those snook just laying there and we have much better luck catching those on fly than we do um catching them in other situations i think hmm yeah, well, I'm glad to hear you say that. It makes me feel a little bit better. Um, oh, man, they can, no, dude, they can be super tough. I mean, especially when you get up around that Boca Grande area and, and uh, up in there and 10,000 Islands and stuff like that, you'll see these snook and they will literally be belly crawling. They'll leave a mud trail behind them. And um, they are super spooky and super difficult to catch. And catching a big one, like a 30-incher up there, that's a that's a real trophy fish on fly. That's, that's, that's really good. And, you know, of course, you know, the snook is a, is a, like a power feeder, right? Like a, like a largemouth bass. Like, so there are times when the largemouth bass can be super easy to catch when they're feeding and they're aggressive. Snooker are the similar kind of thing. You, you get in there on the right situation and they will eat, but most of the time you're not going to find that right situation. You're going to find a situation where they're, they are, not feeding like super super aggressively and um i don't know a lot of people fish uh, also when you're blind casting for them a lot of people are fishing way too shallow uh expecting that they're gonna you know eat something right off the surface when probably like i was saying they're they're right on the bottom so you know getting a fly down in a channel up next to a to a uh, a, a mangrove island can be challenging you know um it, it, you're not seeing them you're throwing in there, you're blind casting, and, and you're probably not not getting deep enough because a lot of times we're not mm. getting deep enough when we're fishing jigs and shrimp, and uh, people are just moving it too fast. And it's like, no, you got to just, they just want it real slow and right on the bottom. And, um, you know, but again, then you'll go, <laughs> you'll go to another place and like, I don't know what he's talking about. These things are super easy to catch. Like, <laughs> you know, they'll sure. bite about anything. That's what you're looking for. Mm, right, right. You just got to put your days in and yeah. and your time in, and uh, and uh, ho- hopefully, eventually, you run into one of those 
one of those instances where they they're they're on the bite and, and you seem to have the right stuff in your hands, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, they are they're, they're they're an enthralling fish. I don't know for some reason they're they've kind of they got their hooks in me right now. I really want to want to try to try to have a have an awesome uh, a snook day one of these days, man. It's a it's a very interesting fish. Yeah, they are. They're wonderful fish, as they all are down there. Um, mm-hmm. You guys are you guys are blessed. I was. We were down out of Isla Mirada, and um, I was—I'd I'd been down there before, but it'd been a while, and um, I was really amazed at how user-friendly um, the keys were in terms of, of navigability. You know, everything's really pretty well marked down there, and yeah, especially up if, there. Now, when you get into the lower keys, it's not marked like that at all, um, and the bottom's hard. So, you know careful you can get in trouble <laughs> careful there yeah. yeah yeah it's really it's it's not marked at all but when you're going when you get into the everglades national park i mean you've got the park service maintaining all the all the markers and you know their their channel markers and they'll point you you know to the right you know there's like an arrow up there that points to the middle of the channel and then you go to the next one there's an arrow going you know the other way so it's keeping you right in the middle of the channel it's very easy to to navigate and then all of those um are represented on the chart so and these days they're right on your gps so you can you can navigate through there pretty pretty easily yeah yeah it's pretty amazing it's a pretty good spot for for a couple guys from montana to go to go poke around um and that you know that map that they sell down there that that has you know the the fish species denoted on it and everything is actually it turned out to be pretty accurate from what we yeah. saw yeah i mean, we no, I mean those, them, those things are generally there <laughs> yeah no i mean they're they're good i mean there's a there's an old book too that you might if you're in some kind of old bookstore you might find one of these but it's one of my one of my favorite ones it's uh Stu app's book fish in the florida keys and flamingo and it's a little book it's about 30 pages 40 pages long it's really small and he, I mean, when I first got to the Keys, man, I looked at that book and it was like, there, there should be bonefish here, permit here or whatever. And those are real spots. I mean, they, they really are. They're real spots. And, and it's only gotten better since then, you know, and, and, you know, for the most part, they're, they're showing you, you know, places that, that most people know. Um, but then, you know, you kind of get to there and you're like, okay, well, they're supposed to be here. I'm not seeing anything here. So I'm going to return on the opposite tide. So maybe the tide's going out. Let's come, let's come back to the same place when the tide's coming in and let's see what we find here. And, um, and, and usually, you know, at some stage of the tide, that, those are, those are real spots. The trick is, you know, getting the weather and the tide to, to match up to where you can, you can make it happen. Yeah, so many variables in 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 your uh, in your environment down there. It's uh, it's mind-boggling how many how many little things you got to pay attention to, and then it's just a it's a yeah, it's it, it's a complex problem and a and a quite a puzzle to try to solve. I understand why uh, the guides down there demand what they do for a day because the amount of uh, time that it takes to figure that stuff out is is uh, it's considerable. It takes a while, but you know, then you, then you start learning how to learn faster. Well, it's sure fun trying. Um, you know, it's uh, it it is February here, and uh, and this is the month when we see our fellow Montanans slothing around like uh, like depressed zombies. And <laughs> you know, when the when the fans of the show Yellowstone realize that their big move to the mountains might have been a mistake, and um, yeah. <laughs> this time of year can be hard on one's mental health. And, uh, and you know, one of the best ways I've found it to counter the winter blues is to, to focus on your physical health. And, uh, on that note, uh, you know, I need a, a good healthy strategy to endure this month. So this morning I signed up for your, your 10,000, uh, pushup challenge. Uh, right on, you, man. Can you tell, <laughs> yeah. Can you tell me what I'm in for, Tom? Um, well, you, it's exactly what, what it sounds like. It's 10,000 pushups in the month of, of February. And I've done this, I don't know, I've probably done it seven or eight times now myself. And, um, and then, you know, I, I started just kind of putting it out there with the podcast that I was doing it and maybe other people would want to do it. And, and it's kind of grown a little bit each year until last year it was, there was a good number of people doing it. And, uh, I, I thought all year I was like, you know, this is kind of a cool thing 
and it's great that people want to do 10,000 push-ups, but I'd like to get more people involved and I'd like to do it for, for some kind of cause. I didn't know if it was going to be a charity or, or, or what, but I started talking to my friends at Captains for Clean Water and, and I was like, you know, this is, this might be something that, that could be good. And, and they were like, okay, well, like, how do you see it happening? And I said, well, you know, you, you, you look at the water issues in Florida as an outsider, especially like, like you, like you come down that town to Florida, Florida's beautiful. You like it. And you're like, okay, well, I understand that there's some water problems here, but maybe you, you're not talking to anybody that can really fully explain it to you. Or maybe you're, maybe you're paying a little bit of attention to it. And you're like, okay, well, like around Lake Okeechobee, when it rains a lot, there's too much fresh water and it goes out into the Gulf of Mexico right down the Caloosahatchee River and then it explodes into this big algae bloom which kills fish and and all of that. Well, that's too much fresh water. Well, on the same at the same time, you've got all the the levees and the dikes and the roads and stuff that have been built between Lake Okeechobee and Flamingo or the or the Everglades and that is restricting all the fresh water. So in one, in a couple of areas, you got way too much fresh water. In other areas, you don't have any fresh water. And so you have this very complicated, complex problem that seems like it doesn't have any kind of solution. And so my thought on the 10,000 push-up challenge was, it's very much the same for people that don't work out all the time, or maybe maybe they do. I don't know. Ten thousand push-ups is a lot of push-ups, right? <laughs> yeah, so I thought, is. well, well, if you uh, if you were able to have a team, then, you know, if you, if, even if you just had a partner, you, then it's just 5,000 push-ups. And if you have four people, then it's just 2,500 push-ups. And over the course of a month, that's really not that much. So really, if we band together and we do small actions, we can accomplish really big things. And so I was kind of thinking about it. I was like, that's, that's kind of similar to the water issues because, like, really, there are solutions out there that Captains for Clean Water is working on. And, um, and there, there have been solutions that have been voted upon and the money has been earmarked for these projects, but they just haven't been started yet. And this is going back like 30 years. And so Captains for Clean Water knows about these things. And they're like, look, if we can just get more awareness around this issue and we can get people to write their congressman, whether they're in Montana or Ohio or Florida, doesn't really matter, to, to, to let their representatives know that this is something that's important to them, that this is a um, really big thing for the health of the water in Florida for generations to come. And we can take actions together as a group that will make huge strides in 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 cleaning up the water and making sure that our grandchildren can see the Everglades even better than the way that we can see it. So that's kind of what the 10,000 push-up challenge is this year. It's this big overwhelming goal that seems like it's impossible, but if you band together, then, you know, a lot of small actions by a few people can can do great things. And of course, you can still do it by yourself if you want to. Um, and lots of people do. 10,000 push-ups is, I think, for February, it's a shorter month. I think it's 29 days. And I think it's 357 push-ups a day, every day, during the month of February. But some people some people finish in, in 10 or 12 days. And um, and th those people are hardcore, man. They're, they're, they're going after it, doing a lot of push-ups a day and I this morning was the first one and so I got on Instagram live and was doing some push-ups with with some people there and some people had already done 450 of them at seven o'clock this morning so I mean people well, get serious behind about schedule <laughs> yeah well I'm I'm yeah I'm, I've got 350 today and I'll do some more later I, I, I like to do about five or six hundred a day and and that that's that's good you know if you if you have a if I do it if I do a lot of them in the morning and then, you know, maybe hit a few kind of around lunchtime and then, then do some more at dinner then, or before bed or whatever, then, you know, I'll hit that five or 600 number. And when you do it like that, um, you know, you'll, you'll start burning through the, the, the pushups. And I got a spreadsheet that you can download, um, on the website, tomrollandpodcast.com and you can get this spreadsheet and it shows you you know you've completed zero you have 10,000 left so every time you 
put a number in there, the Excel spreadsheet will just like update it. So you did 500, so now you have 9,500 left. And at this pace, now you, you can see how the numbers have gone down as you've gotten ahead. So it's like, I just did that just a little while ago. It's not like I'm a mathematician here, but um, it said if at this current pace, now I need to do 339 per day for the rest of the month and I'll, and I'll hit the 10,000. But, you know, I think it's, I think it's good. It raises awareness and the team, the team aspect of it is, is really good because this year, you know, you'll have a lot of people that are asking you, what the hell are you doing 10,000 pushups for, man? I've never done 10,000 pushups in my whole life. I mean, that's what most people <laughs> say. And then it's an, it's an opportunity for you to just say, ah, oh, well, it's for this, you know, it's for the water issues in Florida. I what water issues in Florida? And it just is a good conversation starter. And hopefully we can get people to get registered and get on the, uh, on the Captains for Clean Water um, mailing list so that you're aware of, of what's going on. And when time comes for action to be taken, Captains for Clean Water sends out these, these emails that just say, look, we need, we need everybody to write their congressman about this. If you agree with this, then all you've got to do is click this button and, and put in your zip code, and it will um, send a pre-written letter to your representatives. It's that easy. You just, you just click the button at the bottom that says that, that you approve of that, and, and you're good to go. And it literally takes about 30 seconds. And those 30 seconds, if you're truly interested in in doing something, actually taking action for solutions instead of just complaining about them, those 30 seconds can be super valuable to, uh, to, to the water issues right now. So that's kind of what it's all about. And I'm glad to hear you're doing it. That's, that's awesome. Well, yeah, well, I, I guess I, I, I should, um, um, I should specify that I'm going to split it with my wife. So okay. we're both going to do it. <laughs> yeah, man. It's all about participation. That's that's Three, awesome. I don't know. Three hundred fifty a day is a lot for me. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot for a lot of for most people. You know, it, it really is. And but you'll see, man. If you if you have a partner, and then then you know, if you guys start getting to where you know you, you don't feel like you're you're getting them done or you're getting behind, it's okay to recruit somebody for a couple of days and just just say, hey, you want to you know help us knock out some pushups? And there and the question's going to be, why would I want to do that? And there's there's the conversation starter. So that's what it's that's what it's all about. And um, you know, it's just kind of a fun fun little spin on trying to educate people on the water. Well, I think it's fun. Most people don't think ten thousand push-ups is fun, but it, it it can be something that you didn't think that you were you would be able to do. And and a lot of people surprise themselves at, at how they how they can complete the challenge. Well, yeah, I mean, this is it's just a great way to to have a good healthy outlook on the month of February and, uh, and kind of set the tone for the rest of the year then for, as an individual too. And, uh, as you, as you mentioned, it's uh, it's a little bit of a metaphor for, for, for a bigger cause, right? So yeah, um, exactly. if, if everyone can band together and knock out 10,000 pushups, then, then, uh, maybe everyone can band together and improve the, the water situation down in Florida, which is critical yeah. right now. Or send so. 10,000 emails to the, to the people that, that matter. You know, that's that's really what will make the difference is is really that letting the representatives know that, you know, this project is super important to to the people that vote them into office and they will they they will listen to that. Right. Uh, right. And to, and to sign up for the 10,000 push up challenge, you go to Tom Roland Is that right? that's it and there's right on the front there's a big a big button that says sign up for the 10,000 push-up challenge you can go right there and uh, it's very easy just your name and and uh, email address basically that's all that's all that uh, anybody's asking for and and really the point the purpose of that is just to just to keep everybody informed and educated on what's going on with the water great and then you just the spreadsheets on there that you can follow you can track it over yep. the month and and um, and then if you're doing this challenge, um, you just you tag Tom Roland on Instagram. Um, That'd be awesome. Well, how, tag uh, okay. Captains for Clean Water as well. And um, yeah, I, I'll I'll repost it on my story. And then I'm doing these live things too, where if anybody wants to, you can get together and um, do push-ups together on on uh, social media. It sounds like just a tremendous amount of fun. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think it's, I think it's fun, but it's all for um, a great cause. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, before I let you go, Tom, um, 
I uh, I read uh, somewhere that you threw a 130 foot cast with a standard five weight rod. That's uh, great. It's it, it's it's super hard for most of us to practice and learn how to cast uh, the length of a fly line, which is 90 feet generally. Mm-hmm. Um, so in order to to hit those big distances, in order if a fly caster wants to learn how to break the 100 foot mark other than just practice 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 is there is there a specific thing that you would tell somebody to work on mm, well it, it does help to be in denver colorado when when that happens just like just like the baseball the the fly line does fly further at altitude so <laughs> yeah, that 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 is a that is part of it and maybe you get not an extra for, five, not 40 feet further <laughs> yeah well maybe you get an extra five feet or something like that or it'll unroll a little bit better but basically there's really no reason that you need to cast that far um it's really more of a of a trick it's really more of a of a an exercise in in control um and so a long cast is really great but i don't really ever expect to catch a fish at that distance so there's really no reason that it's necessary that's what i would say first but if you want to impress your friends and you want to be able to to um to throw it, um, if you have the wind, a little bit of wind at your back, that also helps, but it can also hurt. Uh, certainly wind in your face is not good, but when in this particular situation, we were doing it indoors, uh, so there's no wind, and it was in Denver, Colorado, where, where that particular cast happened. But the real trick to that is that you have a, in, in that thing that we were doing, it was called the Best of the West Fly Casting Competition, and it was done at these ISE, expositions and you could use any off-the-shelf um, manufactured fly rod nine foot five weight that that was marked on the rod as nine foot five weight but the thing that that was um, uniform across the competition is that you had to use um, a certain fly line and in this case it was a Cortland fly line and it could be any fly line but as well as long as everyone is having to use the same fly line that makes the competition even because you know if you got a shooting head or you got different types of fly lines can can easily be thrown further than other types of fly lines but one of the things for maximum distance is that the length of the fly line is very important so if you had a 130 foot fly line you could maybe throw even further than you could with an 80 foot fly line depending on on how well you were able to organize the line and and shoot it but backing and fly lines hate one another they they i don't know how they exist on the reel together because i think that's why they they hate each other so bad because they have to lay right (laughs) next to each other on the reel all the time and but when you start stripping out all of your fly line and then you start stripping out 30 feet of backing the chances of making that cast are small because you're going to shoot the 90 feet and when that backing starts to shoot out it's very thin it gets caught around if you're outdoors it gets caught around the grass um and and it it can easily make a knot between the the fly line and the and the backing and get tangled up there so there's a real trick into how you how you you know you organize the line and and anytime you're going to cast a long way whether you're you're bone fishing or red fishing or tarpon fishing or whatever you know you're going to pull the line off the reel and then you're going to restrip that line back into the cockpit of the boat or restrip that line uh, at your feet there and what that does is when you just strip it off of the reel all of the line that you're shooting out is on the bottom of the pile all the line that that should be on the the piles reversed right so the the line that you shoot is on the bottom of the pile the 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 line that's coming off the reel is on the top of the pile so you have to reverse that line and so you strip it all out and then you re-strip it back neatly at your feet and the backing needs to be well away from the fly line otherwise it tangles really bad and and it's super frustrating and you know so that's really the trick is organizing that line so that you you have it to where the the line that's coming off the top of the pile is that's that's the order it should be going out in and obviously the backing isn't on the bottom of the pile of fly line but it's set on a separate pile so the there's one little 
pile of the backing, which is in real big loose coils. And then the fly line is, is uh, in a separate pile. So you would never do this when you're fishing by any stretch, by any reason. It'd be a disaster. But if you're somewhere where there's not a lot of wind, so you would have these two piles kind of out in front of you, and the, there would be a piece of line that would be the backing and the connection to the fly line that would be in the middle of these two piles. So then when you go to make your cast, um, and the reason why the five weight is is really, I think, the best rod for this particular thing of just seeing kind of what kind of control you have with a fly rod because you can only carry so much line in the air with a five weight. Now with when you step up to a 10 weight or a 12 weight, you can, the, the rod has more backbone. You're able to carry more line in the air. So you might be able to carry 60 feet in the air, uh, easily with a, with a 12 weight. And so if you're, carrying the 60 feet in the air you're going to be able to shoot a good amount of line right but the the real trick to any distance casting is is maintaining um real loop control um at the greatest distance that you possibly can so you know you're you're casting back and forth with a line in the air you've got good formation of a loop to where it's like a bullet and then you shoot the line on your back cast, you catch it, and you carry that amount of line only once. You're never gonna be able to carry that again forward and then again back and then shoot it. So you carry the most amount of line that you can with, a, with, with the best loop shape. And then right before you're gonna cast, you go into your big back cast with a huge haul and you shoot about, I don't know, maybe 10% or, or so of the line on that back cast. And then you come forward and make a huge haul and even take a big step forward. And that's, that's your delivery cast. So where a lot of people make a mistake is they try to carry too much line in the air where the real trick to the distance is how much line can you shoot? And, and that can be a combination of a lot of factors, how clean your fly line is, you know, how, but, but a big part of that is, is how much line are you care? Are you able to carry with a perfect loop shape before you shoot that line on the back cast? And then can you, um, like if you shoot too much and you've got a five weight, that rod just kind of collapses and won't deliver a good loop shape out forward. So you can shoot too much on the back cast and then not be able to make the forward cast, or you can shoot too little on the back cast and, and it just doesn't have the, it's kind of like a spinning rod with a lure, right? Like if you have a lure that weighs way too much, when you come forward, the rod just won't throw it out there. But if you have one that's way too light, when you come forward, it just won't carry the line very far. But when you get that perfect match of the right lure for the right spinning rod or surf rod or whatever, and you come forward, it, it, it just really takes off. And the fly line is, is exactly the same way. Um, and it just takes a lot of, a lot of practice really, honestly on dry land, um, to get to where that happened to where you can do that really accurately. And you go through a ton of fly lines because, you know, the dry land is, is terrible for your fly line, but it is, like I say, it's, it's totally unnecessary for fishing and, but at the same time, if you want to be a much better caster, this is a this is a trick that you can use to develop way more accuracy. So in other words, if you can cast 100 feet really well and, and somewhat accurately and with great loop shape and you're able to make that 100 feet turn over at the end, man, 60 feet's a breeze, right? And then 60 feet with a heavy headwind is a breeze and 60 feet with the wind at your back is a breeze and 60 feet with a crosswind is a breeze and you know 60 feet is that's about what you really need to cast in saltwater you know anywhere between 40 and 60 feet and uh if you can cast a little further that that helps occasionally but most fish are going to be caught you know at, at you know 50 or 60 feet honestly and um and so you know if you can cast a little further that that makes it way easier 
to cast at that 60 feet. That's your comfort zone. Instead of like most anglers, when they come down to the keys, 60 feet is their max. And so now you're, you know, it's a lot like weightlifting. Like what if, what if a hundred pounds was your max and, and you go in and you're, you're, you're trying to, you know, lift a hundred pounds, you know, 50 times. Well, it's, it's the max that you can lift. It's going to be very difficult. But if you if your max is 250 and now you're asked to lift a hundred, it's easy. And that's the same thing with archery or, or fly casting or whatever is like, you know, the, the archery guys, they, they practice shots that are longer than, than what they would ever really shoot at an animal. But when they're able to master that and then they come back into their sweet spot of like 40 yards or whatever, they're perfect every time. And that's the same with the fly caster. So I don't know if, if I explain that as well as no, I, I, I thought, could have, I thought but. you did that, that. I thought that was one of the, that was a great explanation. Um, and you know, from a fishing perspective too, learning to shoot your line on the back cast is useful at shorter distances. Like if you're, if you're streamer fishing, whether you're in the salt or, or on a river and the distance of your target's going to change on your next cast, it's, it's useful to be, to, you know, be able to know how to do that. Um, like you well, mentioned. It absolutely is. It, and, and it also helps you to keep from, whacking yourself in the head um because whether you know if you're fishing a you know double girdle bug rig or or a big streamer or whatever and you're you know a lot of trout fishermen do it with a rod that is lighter than the task requires i mean some of the some of the trout flies that that you use in montana weigh the same as the redfish flies that we we fish in florida and we would fish that with an eight weight right trout fishermen right. They'll fish that with a six weight like that's the biggest rod that they've got or they don't right. want to go any heavier or don't feel any need to so um in that situation you know even if you're in a drift boat and you're going down down the river and you're only 40 feet from the bank you know if you can you know you 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 cast let's say you're streamer fishing you cast to the bank and then you strip 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 you know and all the fish are, are within that you know eight to eight to ten feet away from the bank so when you get to there you just pick the line up and if you if you're good at, at shooting line on the back cast you can take that pickup cast shoot the line you know the 10 feet and then you can go right back to the bank immediately um, without any false casts whatsoever and so if you're good at that you know you think about that you're gonna go on a 10 mile float and you're doing that every time you're gonna be on the bank between that eight and ten feet off the bank way more than the guy in the back that's taking two false casts or three false casts every time he's trying to get the line out there and that's that's like a you know a little saltwater kind of thing that that helps greatly um in trout fishing and and when you're doing that you know it 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 helps to to clean the line um a lot and you know at least you know if if that's the style of fishing that you're doing a lot of people um neglect line care and you know that kind of line care you know that kind of casting and you might need to clean the line a couple times a day and uh you'll you'll notice that wow that is awesome you know or get a new line you know some people fish a line all all season and and that's great but if you're really fishing like that a new line will make it way way easier and also fishing with a with a rod that is is the the right weight for the fly that you're fishing you know and, and you can be way more accurate with a seven weight than you can be with a five weight or way more accurate with an eight weight than you can be with a six and in, in certain situations you know you're fishing a big double bunny or or something like that and and I, I just find you know a lot of people myself included when i go trout fishing i tend to use a lighter rod than what i would use in salt water and i'll kind of wonder after a while like why am i doing that because i could I could do the job way better with a little bit heavier rod, but a lot of people don't have them. You know, there's, there's, you know, only a certain time of the year where you're using that. And so a lot of people just, you know, they have one or two fly rods and that's, that's fine. You can learn how to do it with, with a lighter rod. But if you have the, if you have the, the rod at your disposal, use it or at least try it and see if it's better for you. It might not be. Is it, is it useful at all, Tom, if you're gonna, if you're gonna go out and practice um, and what you mentioned about flipping the line and, and organizing the line, um, I think is really good information. It, is it useful at all to, to add a piece of amnesia or like slick shooter or something um, between the fly line and the backing if you're gonna go yeah. out and try to practice a 100 footer? 
I mean, it, it could be that stuff will definitely not tangle as bad. Um, and, and, and that's great. And when you're shooting, when you're doing like a real distance competition, you know, with a shooting head, that's what they use. Like a, there's like a, a shooting head and then a running line. And those guys, you know, they, they hold the, the shooting head, you know, back and forth and back and forth until they get that loop shape perfect. And then they let it fly. And, um, like a Steve Ray Jeff or somebody like that, you might see him. He doesn't just pick it up and, and go back and forth twice and then then let her fly. He's making sure that that loop shape is absolutely perfect and the angle of delivery is absolutely perfect. And then when he lets it go, it really doesn't look a lot different than all the other casts. But to him, he's watching that loop shape and 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 then the running line. You know, just takes off with with mono. Um, in in those type of competitions. Um, that we were talking about earlier it's a different kind of thing because everybody's using the same fly line and I, I don't think that was allowed it was just they would give you a reel and you would just put that on whatever rod that you brought so like if you were a scott guy or you were a sage guy or you know whatever you would bring that rod and then they would give you a reel that was already every identical to everyone else's and so you didn't have that opportunity to to do that. Um, so it depends on what you're what you're practicing for. Like I say, it's it's totally unnecessary to to become a better fisherman uh, or right. to to practice something that you're. That, I mean, you're never going to use that in fishing. But if it's something that you're interested in, or you're interested, you know, you're going to be at these ISE shows, and you want to try your hand at it. What I suggest is is practicing exactly the way that it will be in the competition because if you practice with amnesia and then you get there and there's there's dacron backing you're going to be you know it's not going to be the same right so you want right. to you want to do everything that you can to understand what this what it is that you're going to be casting like how long is the leader how how which exact fly line is it is it is it dacron backing and if so what pound test and that makes a big difference like whether it's 50 pound test or, or 20 pound test or 15 pound test it's thinner and thinner and thinner and easier and easier to tangle and um so whatever you're doing if you can um you know find out exactly what the rig is that you're going to be using there and then practice with that or as close to that as you can possibly get you're going to be way better off when you get to that particular competition if you're just trying to if you're just trying to to cast as far as you can i mean i don't know you're probably doing it because you're you're trying to be a little bit better and maybe maybe you want to impress your friend uh sometime and, and outcast everybody at the barbecue when it when the fly rod comes out that's cool so if you think about that it's like okay well what am i likely to get you're likely to get a, a standard five weight rigged for dry fly fishing right like it's going to have right. dacron backing so that's what i would suggest practicing with because that's what you're gonna that's what you're gonna have as opposed to the you know some sort of party trick where you got you got the amnesia which is definitely going to help you said that's that's definitely going to help because the tangling is a big part of it a lot of people can throw it plenty plenty hard and under plenty control to shoot the the line but the trick is really can you organize the backing so that it's going to shoot out there without tangling and that's a that's a tricky thing you know gotcha that, that's good information um, well, I've taken up enough of your time. We really appreciate you yeah, man. sitting in Thanks. with us uh, today, man. This was awesome. Um, again, to sign up for the 10,000 Push-Up Challenge, go to TomRolandPodcast.com. Um, Tom's the host of the Saltwater Experience on Waypoint TV. You can follow him on Instagram at uh, Tom underscore Roland. And um, any, other, any other avenues that folks can track you? Um, that's mostly it. Uh, Instagram's the, the really only social media that I, I personally look at that much. I, I don't go on Facebook anymore, really. And, and so it's just really Instagram and, and you know, the podcast. Um, that, it's, easy to, it's easy to get hold of me there. Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns. And if you have one to spend, shoot us an email at info at The February Room is always free, 
But if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.